This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Stephen Polanski's story, Leg, which was published in The New Yorker in 1994. When the ball left the bat, a weak fly, he had raised his hands, palms out, signaling Dave to stay put. Hold up, Gomer, he shouted, but it was too late. Dave had committed himself. The story was chosen by David Gilbert, whose own stories had been appearing in the magazine since 1996. His second novel, And Sons, was published last year. Hi, David. Hi, Deborah. How are you? I'm good. So Stephen Polanski is the author of a novel called The Bradbury Report, as well as a collection of stories. But he's published only one story in The New Yorker, and that was 20 years ago. So what made Leg come into your mind so quickly when we talked about doing this? Well, it was a story that's kind of stuck. You know how you can have songs that get stuck in your head? You know, those earworms? They're also mm-hmm. like story worms that mm-hmm. get stuck in your head. And this is one of those stories. The first time I read it, I was at MFA program at University of Montana. And it just stayed with me. It's one of those things I think about probably not once a week, but I think about that leg. You know, it kind <laughs> of just comes up. It's so strange and wonderful and, and evocative. And, and so it's it's just one of those stories that I've always remembered. And did you read the story in the magazine or did you oh, have the, his in the story magazine. section? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you went out and got the book. I got the book. I'm holding <laughs> it in my hand. And uh, they're wonderful short stories. Mm-hmm. And he's a wonderful writer. And it's it's kind of want people to to, to go back to yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so you were doing an MFA at the time. Do you feel as though the stories you were working on were in a similar mode? Is there anyone that he reminded you of at the time? Well, I was certainly, at that time, everyone was reading Dennis Johnson and Alice Munro. That was kind of like, mm-hmm. those were the, the two poles, very different kinds of stories, but that's what everyone was talking about. And I was writing very suburban stories, even though I was unmarried and had no kids. But that was kind of where I was going. And so I think this story appealed to me because it had that element of strangeness, and yet it also had kind of all the suburban things that I was kind of riffing off of in my short stories. So the story is is set in a small town, and it involves a family, a, a father, a mother, and son. Is there anything else that you think people should know about it before they hear it? No, it's a it, it's a wonderfully straightforward story. Great. Well, we'll talk more after the story. And now here's David Gilbert reading Leg by Stephen Polanski. When Dave Long tagged up and tried for third, everyone had to laugh. A bonehead move. And for Dave, typically a prudent guy, uncharacteristic. As he took off, Dave laughed too at his own folly. Church League softball, one gone in last inning, not a blessed thing on the line. The game was without meaning and out of reach, and he went on a shallow fly to left. Good Lord, his wife Susan said to the woman next to her. She was sitting in the aluminum bleachers with the rest of the Bethany Baptist bunch. She had arrived late, barely in time to see Dave reach second on an overthrow. He was surprised to see her. Susan Long was a busy, charitable woman. She worked half-time keeping the books for Nunez Chiropractic and gave her afternoons and evenings to business of the church, the school, the community. Before the game, Dave and his son Randy grabbed some food downtown, as they did two or three times a week. Given her responsibilities at the church, which included a leadership role in Christian education, her several Bible studies and support groups, her involvement in such service arms as member care and prayer chain and Meals on Wheels, Susan had little time to prepare supper or eat it. What the heck is he doing, she said. Dave was trying for third. There was no question. He knew he should stay at second. He should not go, and he went. The left fielder, Pastor Jeff, of the Alliance Church, had a cannon. He looked at Dave as if Dave were pursued by demons. Pastor Jeff spoke to him. In shallow left field, he was close enough to speak to Dave as he headed for third. Where are you going, Dave? Pastor Jeff said. You're dead, man. Dave smiled. He liked Pastor Jeff. On the street. He hadn't cared for his manner in the pulpit the few times he'd heard him preach. Pastor Jeff was too tall. He was six feet nine. 
and his preaching posture was stooped and condescending. He was also too familiar and digressive for Dave, who had been raised in the cooler, straighter logic of the Episcopalians. But Pastor Jeff had the straight truth here. Dave was dead. To rights. Dave had been fast, but he was 44 now, and he was too slow to pull this sort of stunt. Dave's son, his only child, Randy, stood away off, down the third base line, behind the cyclone fence. He was hanging from the fence, as if tethered there, his arms stretched out above his head, his fingers laced through the wire, the toes of his sneakers wedged in the bottommost holes. He shook his head back and forth almost violently. Randy was thirteen. He had not wanted to come watch his father play. God, he said when Dave tagged up, stupid, you're stupid. Randy was a big, strong kid. He was, almost all the time now, angry at his father. He could tolerate his mother, but everything about Dave, who you would have thought the more approachable parent, enraged him. Randy hated the way Dave dressed. He hated his whole wardrobe, in particular a blue-down jacket Dave had had for years and wore when he drove Randy to school on winter mornings. "'You garbage man,' Randy would say to him. "'You look like a garbage man, you grunge monkey.' Dave liked this latter expression. He tried not to smile. "'Laugh,' Randy said. "'Laugh. The garbage man dressed better than you do.' Dave's beard, which he kept respectfully trimmed, made Randy angry. "'No kisses, Wolfman,' Randy said, if Dave bent over his bed to kiss him goodnight. "'You werewolf! You're scaring me, Wolfman!' Randy spoke with stage disdain of Dave's friends. Dave's car, a Taurus wagon, was boring and dumb. For Randy, an emblem of all that was insufferable and pedestrian about his father. But the thing that really drove Randy wild was that Dave liked to read. Dave rose every morning at five so he could spend a quiet hour reading and thinking and praying, which left him irredeemable in Randy's eyes. If Dave sent Randy to his room or otherwise disciplined him, this happened more often than Dave wanted, Randy would say in his cruelest, most hateful voice, Why don't you just go read a book, Mr. Reading Man, Mr. Vocabulary? Go pray, you praying mantis. Watching Randy in his father's presence, the way his face went tight, the way his back stiffened, listening to the explosive, primitive noises he made in place of speech, you could see the boy's anger was beyond his control and understanding. It had sandbagged the kid, hit him blindside, It made Dave very sad. He missed the easy love of his son. He missed talking to Randy. He missed his companionship, and he felt sorry for him, because in the periodic rest between peals of rage, when he took breath, Randy was clearly dazed and spent, and himself sad. Sometimes it was hard for Dave to remember that this abrasive, scowling thing, always coming at him, was his own son. Randy would bump him or leer or growl, make some foul and belligerent gesture, and before he had time to set or check himself, Dave would have responded in kind. You shut your mouth, punk, or I'll shut it for you, Dave might say. He would grab Randy's arm above the elbow and squeeze it hard, trying to hurt him, and he would fill with regret and shame. Randy said, Stupid! You're stupid! And Dave, slow but hell-bent for third, heard him. Shoot, Dave thought. Poor kid. What am I doing? Pastor Jeff threw a rope to the third baseman, also named Jeff, who worked in the auto salvage yard. This layman Jeff caught the ball and straddled the bag, waiting for Dave, who was still only halfway there. Dumb, Randy said. You are stupid! He untangled himself from the fence and turned his back to the field. The third base coach, Pastor Rick, senior pastor at Bethany Baptist, was at a loss. When the ball left the bat, a weak fly, he had raised his hands, palms out, signaling Dave to stay put. Hold up, Gomer, he shouted, but it was too late. Dave had committed himself. Pastor Rick was Dave's age. They met downtown once a week for lunch, to discuss scripture and Dave's personal journey in faith. 
they had that day over turkey melts and iced tea considered Matthew 713-14, a familiar passage Dave had lately found compelling and vexing. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. After a space of silent meditation, Pastor Rick asked Dave what he thought the gospel writer might have meant by the word narrow. They had their Bibles on the table before them. Apart from the obvious, Dave said. Yes, said Pastor Rick. Are you asking because you know or because you want to know? The second, Pastor Rick said. I don't know. How would I know? You're Baptist. No shit, Pastor Rick said. If we knew what the Hebrew was, Dave said, or the Greek. Good question. I don't. So? Dave thought a moment. Maybe as in severe, he said? I don't know. Narrow? As in pinched? It pinches you to go through? What's the word? Uh, Straits? Straightened? Maybe exclusive? Most people are excluded. They are left out. Unpopular? Maybe narrow as in simple? Sheer? Simple? Severe? Did I already say that? Yes, you did. Yeah, well, that's what I come up with. Good stuff, Pastor Rick said. What have you got, Dave said. Half my sermon, thanks. A female fan on the Bethany side was yelling, Slide, Dave, slide! This was a joke, because no one slid in church league. The guys were too old, too sedate. And besides, Dave was wearing shorts. Everyone laughed. Dave heard the call for him to slide, and he too found the proposition laughable. Then he slid. He raised his right hand in a fist. He yelled, Oh, Mama! And from six feet away, and at what was for him top speed, he slid into third. Under the tag. Around the tag, really. No one who watched could believe it. It was the best, the only hook slide anyone had ever seen in that church league. The base paths were a hard, dry, gravelly dirt, and Dave tore up his leg. He stood up, called time, and limped off the bag. He looked down at his leg, the left, which was badly abraded from ankle to knee. Beneath a thin film of dirt, which Dave tried to wipe off with his hand, the leg was livid, strawberry, a crosshatch of cuts and gashes, bits of sand and gravel in the wounds. Pastor Rick was beside him. He put his arm around Dave. Why'd I do that, Dave said. Ouch. Wild man, you okay, Pastor Rick said. Nice slide. Thanks, I'm okay, I think. Can you walk? You want a runner? Nah, Dave said, I'm fine. You sure? Yeah, Dave said. Pastor Rick patted Dave on the rump. All right, then, go get him. Dave turned to the crowd. He smiled sheepishly and waved. Susan stood up in the stands. I'm okay, he said. Big jerk, she said to herself as she sat down. Then to the woman next to her, I don't believe it. She took a magazine out of her purse and looked at the cover. She stood up. She shook the magazine at Dave. He pretended to cower, and the crowd laughed. Randy, who had wheeled to watch the play from the left field foul line, was embarrassed that his father slid, that his father slid in shorts and hurt himself sliding, that the slide, in this context, a game for coots and phoebes and wacko fundamentalists, was inordinately ridiculously good, and on top of it all, that his mother had gotten to this bad circus act. Randy began to drift in his father's direction up the line. Dave watched his unwitting tack with gratitude and wonder. He looked at Randy, shrugged his shoulders, and smiled a bit goofily. It was only when Dave smiled at him that Randy realized he was moving toward his father. He wrenched himself away, Randy turned and headed for the parking lot. Dave's leg looked bad, painful, but it didn't really begin to hurt until after the next batter, Lloyd Weeks, who worked for Dave at the cereal plant, tapped a ground ball to the pitcher, stranding Dave at third and rendering perfectly gratuitous his miracle slide. Randy caught a ride with his mother, who left as soon as the game ended. 
taking time only to tell Dave to get home and clean up his leg. To give Randy some time for his anger, Dave stayed to help gather the equipment, then wound up going for a beer with Pastor Rick and a few of the men. His leg was stinging. He doused it with cold water from a spigot by the backstop. At Tiny's, he ordered a beer and a scotch. He poured out the scotch on his napkin and swabbed his leg. Shoot, Dave said, that stings. That is one ugly leg, said Pastor Rick. Pastor Jeff of the Aligned Church held up his Diet Coke and waggled it. Just for the record, he said, and if anyone asks, I wasn't here. Who was, said Pastor Rick. Great slide, said Pastor Jeff to Dave. I had you nailed. Never in doubt, Dave said. Dave nursed his beer, listening to Pastor Rick and Pastor Jeff disagree about glossolalia and about the dangers, Pastor Jeff, and the appeals, Pastor Rick, of ecumenism, and then commiserate about the unremitting demands of the lectionary. You write me this week, said Pastor Rick. I'll give you half the take. I'll do it for nothing, said Pastor Jeff. You preach what I write. Sure, sure, said Pastor Rick. He looked over at Dave. My guys couldn't handle it. Talk about speaking in tongues, Dave said. Pastor Jeff laughed, then sat up very straight. I cast thee out, little feller, he said to Dave. I was just leaving, Dave said. When Dave got home, it was half past nine, and Susan was already asleep. Randy was closed up in the room listening to his music. Dave stood outside the door. Randy had the volume down, but Dave could still feel in his feet the pulse of the bass and the drum. It was a song he knew. They, they betray. I'm your only true friend now. They, they'll betray. I'm forever there. He knew the song. He knew the CD, Metallica. Randy played it often and loud, and Dave had listened to it several times on his own when Randy wasn't around. Hate, I'm your hate, I'm your hate when you want love. The boy had taste. This music was virtuoso stuff, and Dave thought it might lead him to other forms. But the lyrics, which seemed to speak to Randy so nearly, the spirit, pitch dark and bereft, to which Randy vibrated with such sympathy, made Dave unhappy and fearful. He told Randy once that he liked the music. Randy needed no time to work into his rage. You don't like it. You don't know anything about it. You've never even heard it. I've heard it, Dave said, backing off. I think it's good. Forget it. You don't know anything, Randy said. Keep out of my room. Don't touch my stuff. Dave showered, and dabbed his leg with a soapy washcloth. The injury was worse than he'd thought. There was almost no skin left on the wound, which covered a sizable portion of the leg, from the ankle to the knee. It looked as if someone had gone at his leg with a cheese grater. The tissue around the lesions was pink and swollen. When they were clean, they would not stop bleeding. The blood didn't flow so much as pool up, and he used a roll of toilet paper trying to stanch it. When it still would not stop, he wrapped his lower leg tightly in some gauze bandage he dug out of the vandy drawer and fastened that with adhesive tape. Almost at once, his leg began to throb. It felt hot. It was already infected, he figured. He lay down on the living room couch and elevated his leg with a cushion. After a few minutes, the blood had seeped through the gauze and Dave gingerly removed it. There would be no way to stitch the thing. The surface area was far too large and irregular. He thought about going over to the emergency room. Instead, he boiled some water in a pot. He soaked a fresh dish towel in the water, lifted it out with salad tongs, and, thinking to cauterize the wound, applied it to his leg. It scalded him. He cried out but held the towel to his leg as long as he could bear to. Then he sat down on the kitchen floor, his left leg stretched out before him, and prayed. His praying was rarely premeditated or formal. Most often it was a phototropic sort of turn, a moment in which he gave thanks or stilled himself to listen for guidance. He shied from petitionary prayer. With all he had, it felt scurvy, scriptural commendation notwithstanding, to ask for more. This night... 
his leg hurting to the bone, he permitted himself a request. Father, he said quietly, please help me to see what I can do for Randy. He is in great pain. I love him. If it is your will, show me what I might do to bring him peace. Dave looked up. Randy was watching him from the bottom of the stairs. Amen, Dave said. He smiled. Hey, bud. Randy said nothing. He stood looking at Dave. Dave got to his feet. Man, the sucker hurts, he said. What are you up to? You screamed, Randy said. He did not move from his spot on the stairs. I burned myself, Dave said. I came down. Well, thanks, Dave said. I'm okay. Randy snorted. He shook his head and went back upstairs. The doctor used the word superation. Despite Dave's homespun palliatives, the wound had begun to form and discharge pus, so much that by the end of the next day, when Dave came home from work and called the doctor, the pants he'd worn to the plant were sodden and glued to his leg. You better come in and let me look at it, the doctor said. Can you come in sometime tomorrow? I can't, Dave said. I, I can't get away. What do I do for it on my own? You keep it clean, the doctor said. You use a topical dressing, bacitracin, neosporin. I'll tell you this, if it's as infected as it sounds, you'll need a course of oral antibiotics, perhaps even intramuscular. Or what, Dave said. What are you asking? I'm asking what might happen. That's not a question, the doctor said. All sorts of things might happen, which is why we don't fool around. Staph, strep, massive swelling. You want more? Gangrene, sepsis. Work at it, you could lose your leg. Does that scare you? Yes, Dave said. Good, the doctor said, because we're not negotiating. You come in day after tomorrow. If I can, Dave said. No, no, not if you can. You come in. The leg continued to weep. After several days, the pain was so bad, so deep, he could not put any weight on it. Though he tried keeping it clean, it had begun to smell. At night, he removed the dressing and left the wound open to the air. Randy gone, Susan said. She was on her way to Nunez Chiropractic and stopped in the kitchen to sit with Dave for a minute while he ate breakfast. Yeah, he's gone, Dave said. How'd he go? He was peaceful, Dave said. I don't know, light. He seemed lighter. I said goodbye, then he said goodbye. No agony, no outburst. We had ourselves a remarkable morning. Well, what's your day like, Susan said. Good, he said, the same, the usual. What about yours? You busy? The usual, she said. Listen a minute. I'm concerned about you, about your leg. Don't be, he said. It's bad. Not too bad, he said. It's better today. I've thrown away two pairs of your pants, she said, and I can see you can't walk. How can you say it's better? It is. I'll be fine. Why don't you go to the doctor? Did you call him? I did call, Dave said. He told me what to do for it. I've got an ointment. What about dinner? We in or out? I'll make something, Susan said. Dinner. You tell me now. What's going on? What? He said. Tell me what you're doing. Because I'm concerned. I'm worried. And I've got to go. Please. What are you doing? Nothing. Nothing? She said. Hacking around, whatever. You know me. I know you, she said. We're talking about your leg. It will be fine, he said. Dave did not go to work. Without crutches or a cane, he could not make it to the car. He phoned his secretary and told her he'd be out of town for several days, maybe a week. He devised half-heartedly a story about his mother, who suddenly needed tending to. His secretary was confused by the story, but she did not question him. He would call her again that afternoon, he said, to fill her in. Could she handle things for a while in his absence? He spent the morning stretched out on the couch, the living room curtains drawn, in prayer. At one point he woke from a near trance to find his heart wildly beating, as if he had just run a set of wind sprints. He was not flushed or dizzy 
or short of breath. He felt calm and relaxed, except for the steady thrum of pain in his leg and his heart thumping away. The strangeness of it made him laugh. He took a few deep breaths and closed his eyes. In the afternoon, just before Randy got home from school, the doctor called. I called your office, the doctor said. You weren't there. I'm here, Dave said. He was by then on the cool kitchen floor, supine, three crocheted hot pads beneath his head, his left leg raised slightly, the foot resting on a cookie tin. Your secretary said you were out of town. I haven't left yet, Dave said. I want to know how your leg is, David, and why you didn't come in as I asked. The leg is fine, Dave said. I put that ointment on it. It's looking good. No more discharge? None. It's healing, the doctor said. The pain is subsiding? Seems to be, Dave said. So, good, that's good. You're lucky. These things can turn nasty if they're not attended to. You got lucky. The next time I tell you to come in, I want you to come in. I will, Dave said. Thanks for calling. Dave was on the kitchen floor when Randy came home from school. He thought about getting to his feet, but he had found a comfortable, if somewhat ludicrous, position and was unwilling, even for Randy, to suffer the pain that would attend trying to stand up. Randy came into the kitchen for a snack. He looked at Dave lying on the floor and stepped over him on his way to the refrigerator. Thanks for not stomping me, Dave said. Randy got out the milk and poured himself a glass. What are you doing? he said. It's cool down here. I'm having a little trouble standing. What is it? Randy said without looking at him. Your leg again? That was the first mention Randy had made of Dave's leg, though Dave could see, in the way Randy had behaved the past few days, restrained, even equable, that he'd been aware of it. How is school? Okay, Randy said. Any trouble? No. Have you got homework? No, a little. Get yourself something to eat, Dave said. I am, Randy said, and he began probing the refrigerator. He took out packages of Munster cheese and sliced ham and a jar of mayonnaise. Where's Mom? Out, Dave said. What do you need? Oh, nothing. Where are we going for dinner? Here, Dave said. Randy made himself a sandwich. You hungry? Dave said a question he regretted as soon as he had asked it. It was the sort of question, nervous and dumb and self-evidently posed to fill the uneasy space between him and his son, that invariably caused in Randy a detonation. Starving, Randy said. Well, leave some room for dinner. I am, Randy said. Sunday afternoon was hot, and Pastor Rick came by the house in cut-off jeans, tank top, baseball cap, and flip-flops, to see Dave. Susan had put him up to it. She'd lingered in the narthex after the service to talk to him. Pastor Rick had begun to worry about Dave on his own. He hadn't heard from him in nearly a week, and seeing Susan in church alone that morning, he thought something might be wrong. Dave was as steadfast a parishioner as Pastor Rick had. Susan was undisguisedly afraid. She said the whole thing was inexplicable. Dave could no longer walk at all. No matter how tenderly she urged, no matter how forcefully she insisted, he would not go to the doctor. He claimed it was simply a matter of keeping off the leg for a few more days. But so far as she could see, it was worse. She admitted that he seemed calm and reasonable and in amazingly good spirits, but he could not get off the couch and spent his time now in the living room. Where is that gimp? Pastor Rick said, loudly enough for Dave to hear. Susan had gone to the door to let him in. Why is this room so dark? What is this thing on the couch? Can't we open the curtains? It's cooler like this, Dave said. He was glad to see Pastor Rick. Sit down, relax. You're not in charge here. This is my house, bud. Tough guy, Pastor Rick said, as he sat in a cane rocker opposite Dave who, to receive his friend, had worked himself up to a sitting position. "'What's with you?' Pastor Rick said. "'Not much. Where you been? Here and there. Mostly here. You missed a game. Susan, you got anything to drink? What would you like?' She was standing at the entrance to the living room. "'You got a beer?' "'We do,' she said. "'Cold? 
She nodded. Bring it on, he said. You want one, Dave? I'm fine, Dave said. The two men talked for about an hour in the darkened room. Susan delivered the beer, then left them alone. They talked first about baseball. At one point, Pastor Rick turned on the TV, and they watched the last two innings of a game. They talked about their children, their faith. Pastor Rick had been chafing under denominational expectations, these having especially to do, as he described it to Dave, with his maverick preference for the indicative gospel over the imperative, for the good news over the do's and don'ts. There were, likewise, the expectations of the particular body of believers at Bethany Baptist, which he divided roughly into two camps. Those with what he called a mature faith were at ease with a theology and homiletics less than prescriptive. The others, new to the faith or unable to push beyond a relatively simplistic version of it, were skittish without a neatly packaged set of rules and admonishments. I think you got it backward, Dave said. Oh yeah, how's that? It's we mature ones who need the hard line. We don't know what to do with grace once we've got it. It's too much for us. It's too much. We don't know how to behave, and so we behave as we always did, grace or no. I've been thinking about this. I see that, said Pastor Rick. I have. We're sloppy, we're slack, we're smug. We're just flat-out disappointing. You got to whip us into shape or we embarrass ourselves and each other. Uh, be careful what you ask for, Pastor Rick said. Just before he left, he turned the conversation directly to the question of Dave's leg. You don't need to do this, he said. It isn't called for. I know, Dave said. It's crazy. What do I say? You don't say anything, Pastor Rick said. You go to the doctor is what you do. Maybe I will. Don't, and I'll be back to take you myself. The family had supper that night in the living room. Dave ate on the couch, Susan on the cane rocker from a tray, and Randy on the floor in front of the television. Susan fixed a light salad and made fresh lemonade. It was too hot to eat much else, though Randy asked for a grilled cheese sandwich. It was a quiet meal. Dave and Susan hardly spoke. Randy watched a sports magazine show. He was subdued, well-mannered. Dave, who was light-headed and running a low-grade fever, was happy. After supper, he fell asleep on the couch. He was not aware of Susan and Randy going up to bed. At two in the morning, he woke when Randy came down the stairs. Dave turned on the table lamp behind his head, and when his eyes got used to the light, he could see that Randy was crying. He was standing at the foot of the couch, a plaid cotton blanket draped shawl-like over his shoulders. He was wearing boxer shorts and nothing else, and he was weeping. Dave looked at him for a moment, certifying that he was neither dream nor delirium. Randy, Dave said, you okay? What time is it? I don't know, the boy said. Two? I'm okay. What's wrong? I came down. Have you been asleep? No. I was out cold, Dave said. What's going on? Nothing, Randy said. You're crying. I'm not crying, Randy said. I, I came down because I want to say something. Go to the doctor. That's all I came down for. Hold a minute, Dave said. Let me get up here. Without thinking, Dave swung his feet off the couch and tried to stand up. He wanted to touch Randy, to make some sort of physical contact with his son, to comfort him, put his arm around his shoulder, hold him. Dave's left foot touched the floor, and the pain in his leg was astonishing. It knocked him flat on the couch. Whoa, Dave said. Hold the doors, good Christ. Do you see? Randy said. For shit's sake, Dad, do you see? Are you nuts? What are you doing? I'm not sure, Dave said. I'm really not sure. Oh, man, oh, man, what are you doing? Go to the doctor. It was by then too late. He would lose the leg. That's not a bad idea, Dave said. I will. That was David Gilbert reading Leg by Stephen Polanski. It was published in The New Yorker in 1994 and was included in his story collection, Dating Miss Universe. 
Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, David, let's just talk quite directly about what happens here. Why do you think that Dave is refusing to have his leg looked at by a doctor? Is there is there a deliberate process happening in his mind? Does he know why he's doing it? Well, I think consciously and, and unconsciously he knows what he's doing. I mean, I think it's – the story points to its own metaphor, you know, because it's titled Leg. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the leg is such an obvious metaphor. And I think it points to both the richness and the emptiness of metaphor, that it does contain a lot, but at the end of the day, it's just this abstraction. What do you think the leg is a metaphor for? Oh, for – many things. I mean, it kind of is taking the sins of Randy in some way. Mm-hmm. It's taking his own, Dave's own spiritual journey, lots of religious elements. I mean, the leg weeps. It's almost like a religious icon. Mm-hmm. And that sense that suffering is what will get you closer to God. But really, at the end of the story, it's very much a parallel between the leg and Randy and how that is in some ways, repairing this relationship or letting Dave see Randy as the boy he was. Because Randy is obviously now, instead of able to express his own rage, he's now feeling unsafe. He's mm-hmm. feeling something is bigger going on. Yeah. There's that moment when um, Dave is in the kitchen praying and he's not. he says he never asks for anything in his prayers, but he's going to allow himself to ask for something now. And what he asks for is not help with his leg. It's not help with his pain, it's help with Randy's pain. Mm -hmm. And do you think that the answer to that prayer is somehow by suffering his own pain, he he alleviates Randy's? Is it it as direct as that? I think the story is richer than that. Mm -hmm. I think that would be kind of a almost O. Henry-esque element to it. So I think Stephen Polanski was absolutely aware of the heavy metaphoric meaning of this leg. I mean, you don't title the story leg if Mm -hmm. you don't know that. I think he's playing with what that metaphor might be. If Is this actually going to solve Randy's problem? Or is this just a really strange thing that dad is doing and it's becoming, <laughs> it's becoming, you Is know, it crazy? It's yeah. crazy. It's con- yeah. everyone's concerned now. It's like, dad, snap out of it. So it also has like Bartleby in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has kind of a Kafka-esque element to it. It kind of plays with all these different ideas within a very suburban setting. And I also think... The softball game to me is just so excellent. And like Pastor Jeff had a cannon. I mean, that to me, I could read that, that line forever. And you're dead. Yeah. You're and, dead. And, yeah. It's so funny. And Randy just screaming at his dad, you know, wolf man, and, and yeah. you're stupid. Yeah. And I yeah. have a son who's about to turn 13, and he's not at Randy levels yet, but you can see it. You can see it. Yeah. 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 Do you think this, the portrait of Randy is an exaggeration, or do you think it's credible? Oh, I think it's totally credible, yeah. you know? That he would feel that, oh, that degree absolutely. of Yeah, especially fury. he's listening to Metallica, you know? <laughs> no, I thought Randy was an excellent evocation of teenage years. Uh, yeah. And, and the story's funny, and also it's it's a, one of those rare stories that's about faith in, in a very honest way. I mean, it's it's searching without making fun of it at all. Yeah, it's interesting. You very rarely see a story that is in which religion plays such a strong role and yet is not the subject of conversation in a sense. Yeah. It's not the subject of the story. It's just a very profound part of the story. It's part of the suburban setting, really. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think it does play such a big role? Well, I think because the story is called Leg and it is about suffering, 
as a writer, you often try to reverse engineer people's stories to figure mm -hmm. out how they got where mm -hmm. they got to. So my idea of this story came into Stephen Polanski's head. He thought about, oh, someone sliding and getting a really bad, mm -hmm. you know, leg infection and not doing anything about it. That's like the kernel of the story. Mm -hmm. And then you have to craft something around that. <laughs> uh, when you think of, a, of something like that where you're kind of inviting suffering, religion kind of instantly comes to mind. So mm -hmm. I think he's, he thought to himself as I reverse engineer this story, oh, I, I, I'll bring in faith right. and searching. And then, well, a 13-year-old kid, because that's also a form of suffering. I mean, there's a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful line about, you know, the sadness behind Randy's anger. Yeah, you know? yeah. And there's also a sadness behind Dave, too. I mean, he's not quite totally content, and his wife is kind of, you know, never cooking dinner because she's cooking dinner for everyone else. So I think the religion was a very important part of it without it being a religious story. What do you make of the two conversations that Dave has with Pastor Rick? You know, the first one is where he's talking about the passage from the Gospel of Matthew where he's talking about the, the narrow gate and what the definition of that would be. Does that apply in some way to the story or to what he's doing? I always thought that, you know, well, he uses severe. Mm -hmm. Then I thought sever. You know, I thought that he's playing with that word a little bit in terms of kind of foreshadowing the leg. But, yeah, it's that question of, you know, he even uses the odd word unpopular, mm -hmm. you know, which is kind of, you don't really think of, you know, popularity contests in terms right. of religion. Yeah. But there is that idea of there's the Baptist, there's the Episcopalian, there are the two different church league baseball mm -hmm. teams, that mm -hmm. there it is a competition yep. to a degree. So there, the gate is not only narrow in terms of, of, of who gets in, but also it's certain popularity contests in terms of mm -hmm. who wins the big game, you know. But in terms of Dave going through the gate, I mean, I think that's just a question, you know, everyone struggles with in terms of am I leading the right kind of life? Well, he certainly makes an unpopular choice yeah, about and his it's leg. An incredibly <laughs> passive-aggressive choice. It's very strange. Also, everyone, it is that Bartleby kind of thing. I prefer not to because you would think that Susan would just force him to go to the doctor. There's that intervention, but everyone's kind of letting him go on this journey. Right. Well, that's one of the strangest things about this mm -hmm. story. Why why do they allow this? Why does everybody allow this? It, it It's as though only Randy can be the one to, to make him go. Right. But everybody else, you know, Pastor Rick comes and has a beer and watches some sports. There's no urgency, yeah. really, in the people around him, which is... Considering that he can't even walk. Is yeah, it, yeah, you know? and it was definitely an <laughs> urgent astounding. situation, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's uh, that really Dave is almost a barely noticeable person. You know, he kind of almost exists in the ether. And even that move to go from second to third, that was not typical. He was a prudent guy. Right. He was someone right. not not noticed, you know, not really even in some ways, present in the community that much. Mm -hmm. And he works at the cereal plant. I love that. <laughs> I love that detail. Yeah, everyone kind of participates in his journey, and it is peculiar because there is no sense of alarm. Yeah, except in Randy. Or Randy's the only one who actually can communicate to Dave that mm -hmm. he should go. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of Randy's the only one who can actually not just notice the severity of the situation, but also in noticing it, move his father. You know, he's the only mm -hmm. one who can kind of fit that slot. There's that second conversation that Dave has with Pastor Rick where they talk about grace and how old people don't know how to don't know what to do with it. They want the they rules. don't appreciate yeah. it. Mm -hmm. They've been given grace and they can't find out what to do with it. And I wonder if there's an implication that he's sort of self sacrificing in order to, to break that down or if he's you know, becoming a martyr in a sense, if there is a sort of religious connotation to his decision to lose his leg, which is mm -hmm. basically what he's decided. Yeah, I think that's the move. But I think in pointing to the overt metaphoric quality of the leg, it's also undercutting it as well. It's mm -hmm. kind of, if this is his grab for grace, it's a pretty empty grab. And at the end of the day, the grace just comes in the communication between father and son. That's kind of the graceful moment. Mm -hmm. Because the fact that he's lost his leg is just in one quick, straightforward line. It's not 
even made that big a deal of. Yeah, though it's interesting that he asks these very pointed questions in that first conversation with the doctor. What will happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, if it's not treated. Yeah, he wants That's an answer. True. He wants yeah. to know what the outcome is going to be, and you sense at that moment he's already made up his mind. Yeah. I think that's right. One of the things that's most surprising to me about this story is just how sort of cheerful Dave is Mm -hmm. through the whole process. You know, something about what's happening makes him incredibly happy and lighthearted. Yeah, I keep because you don't get a sense of him before this, so you don't know if this is his regular way of of interacting. Yeah, I mean, it seems to start at the baseball game. It's that moment of deciding to go for third. Yeah. Right? And he's like, yeah, I am dead, but, you know, I'm still going to do it. Yeah. She says, slide. Of course I shouldn't slide, but I'm going to slide. Yeah. Then when Um, you said dead, he makes it kind of, he is then reborn from that slide. And everything after that is just sort of joyful for him. Yeah. He kind of reminds me of Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. You know, he's just (laughs) like, yeah, everything's good. That's all right. I, uh-huh. can't, I can't stand up, but, you know, yeah, but that's I found a I comfortable love. spot on yeah. the floor. <laughs> and maybe that's why everyone's not reacting, because he's just always cheerful and, like, probably one of those guys that nothing bad really ever happened yeah. to. It's kind of like with his prayers. He, he didn't feel like he could ask for anything because everything had gone pretty well. And yeah. It felt like yeah. that great word scurvy to, to ask. I think the the process of being seen because of this infection is maybe bringing him out in some ways, mm-hmm. you know? Well, he's seen for the first time when he does the slide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And, and, and it's almost as though he's, something's happened and he yeah. said, I'm, I'm not a nobody anymore. Yeah. yeah. I'm just going to go for it. And of course loses the leg that he sli- right. made the miraculous slide with. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if it's, if it's in any way triggered by Randy's constant harassment of him, <laughs> you know, and insulting of him. If there's a sort of a, sense, well, if, ever, if he thinks I'm stupid, I'll be stupid. You mm-hmm. know, I'm just going to go for it. Yeah. And I love the fact that Randy was embarrassed by the perfection of the slide. It yeah. didn't, it didn't yeah. win him over at all. He's embarrassed by everything. Embarrassed by his down coat. Embarrassed I, by I his garbage, Embarrassed by his reading. Garbage man. <laughs> Mr. Vocabulary. <laughs> I, just, I love, yeah, just Randy on that fence just cracks me up. That was fantastic. Yeah. When I talked to Stephen Polanski, he told me that when this story came out, he was living in um, Northfield, Minnesota, and his son, Benjamin, was 12 or 13. And it's a very small town. And everyone, you know, read the story. And he said, every time he and his son walked around town, everyone was staring uh-huh. at them, you know, and looking at his leg and looking to see if they were arguing. Right, and so right. And, uh, you know, he, to the point that he finally sent a letter to the local paper saying that this, <laughs> this story right. was, was fictional. No, and right. it's not. Well, it's also funny because most of the stories in Dating Miss Universe has a narrator who has a beard. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at the author photo, it's like he's got a very impressive beard, <laughs> at least when this book came out. So it's always, you know. Right, right. The one other thing I want to talk about is is the opening with the baseball game, how how so much happens. It's sort of, you know, time is basically frozen between second and third base. And we get his whole life story in a mm-hmm. sense. In that time, it reminded me a bit of Tobias Wolff's story, Bullet in the Brain. Yeah, I love that story. Where you get all these flashbacks Mm -hmm. in the time it takes the bullet to enter the brain. It's a literary conceit in a way. How do you think he makes it work? Well, it's great to freeze action. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't do it if you're just sitting on the couch because you'll lose Mm -hmm. your reader every Mm -hmm. time. So Tobias Wolff does it by way of, you know, this bullet. Right. And Stephen Polanski does it by way of being stuck between second and third. So it gives you the narrative momentum to be able to digress because you know that you can keep your reader, you know, Mm -hmm. on the hook, essentially. And you can stretch that time as, as long as you want, as long as you just kind of keep the touchstones of what's going on in the present, you know, situation. So it is, it's always like a very helpful technique. Yeah, I mean, we have these two forms of time. We have that sort of frozen opening, which takes probably a minute mm-hmm. in real time. And then we have this week that drags on right. during which he fails to act. You know, mm-hmm. it's like half the story is full on action and the other half is static. And then, as you said, we get the, the final denouement in one line, you know. Yeah, just, yeah. He's, he's lost the leg too, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. I would probably have, you know, rushed him to the hospital. And, <laughs> Randy, Dad, I love you. You know, I was just like, boom, there yeah. it is. Yeah. It's that one line instead of really working it. 
How would you envision the aftermath? Are Dave and Randy good? No, not at no. all. I mean, that's why <laughs> I think Randy goes back to being Randy yeah. and Dave goes back to being Dave, who's the crazy guy who didn't get his leg looked at in time. I mean, that's why I think that the metaphor works the way it works, because it's both, it does have grace in it, mm-hmm. yet also it's empty. You know, it, it's, it kind of holds both those things at the same time. It's a tragedy. Yeah. I mean, he, he lost his leg for no good reason. And it's not going to change his son. His son is simply going through adolescence. Yet Dave is taking it very personally, and it's, it's hurting him because he's, he's suffering in his silent way. So the leg is now the external suffering. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to change really who he is, I don't think. So this is an object lesson. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't do this. Don't try this at home. Go to your doctor. <laughs> Always go for the slide. Even, no matter if you're 20 or 60, go for the hook slide because that's pretty cool. Right. But go see your doctor. Well, thank you, David. Oh, thank you for asking me to do this. Introducing Kindle Voyage from Amazon, passionately crafted for readers. Our most advanced e-reader ever, it features a brilliantly crisp display, remarkably thin design, effortless page turning, and light that adjusts with you. It's intuitive, simple, and goes beyond a book. Order your Kindle Voyage today. You will travel in a land of marvels. David Gilbert is the author of the novels And Sons and The Normals and the story collection Remote Feed. You can download more than 85 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. In the digital edition, you can hear the short stories in the magazine read by their authors. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Jenna Weiss-Berman of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.